I'm going to ask that you open now to John chapter 9. Last week, we studied verses 1 through 7. This morning, we will look at verses 8 through 11. But I do want to read the account of occurrence here. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. And then we'll look in detail at verses 8 to 11. John 9. Verse 1. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Isn't it this not he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He's like him. He said, I am he. Therefore, they said to him, How were your eyes open? He answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay, anointed my eyes, and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed. And I received sight. Father, we ask that you'll open our eyes this morning to understand the deep truths of this passage for which our Savior, your Son, drew an illustration as to spiritual sight and spiritual blindness. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the message is The Unrecognizable Identity of this visibly transformed. The unrecognized identity of the visibly transformed. This story is the greatest illustration of spiritual blindness in the Bible. And Jesus himself applies this healing as an illustration portrayed in verse 39 of the same chapter. For judgment, Jesus said, I have come into this world and those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. The worst kind of blindness there is, is to think that you see when you don't see. In other words, to think that you're saved, to think that you know God when you don't know God and you're not saved. Being led as many are, by blind leaders. Charles Spurgeon, who preached at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London in the 1800s, spoke to his congregation one Sunday, and he said this, quote, If you go outside the tabernacle, take the first turning on the left, and walk down what is called St. George's Road till you come to the end, you may see asylums built for three sorts of blind people. On your right hand, you will have the blind school that is for the physically blind who've lost 
the sight of these outward eyes. On the left hand, you will see the Bethlehem hospital that is for the mentally blind who've lost their inner sight and are in the more unhappy state of lunacy. Then straight before, you will see St. George's Roman Catholic Cathedral that is for the spiritually blind, whose case is all the more pitiable because these blind people have blind leaders and their deluded souls are prescribed for by the physicians who foster their delusions. End quote. Jesus referred to such as blind leaders of the blind. That's what religion is. Now, we've met many kinds of blindness thus far in John's gospel. We've seen numerous, numerous cases of the internally, habitually blind who can only see the hand of Christ desiring his hand of provision through his miracles. We witnessed that in chapter 2 and also in chapter 6. They covet his hand of provision but not his heart, not his person, only his hand, not his face. And they're unwilling to surrender and worship him and him alone. And then, of course, there's those who think that they see, those blind leaders of the blind that Jesus referred to. They're absorbed with religious traditions in an attempt to earn salvation through these vigorous legalistic attempts that they've laid or that they laid upon other people. Heavy burden. And then last time here in John 9, we met a physically blind man, a beggar, suffering with congenital blindness, blindness from birth, who was healed by Jesus, as we just read. And in today's study, we will meet the neighbors of the blind man in verses 8 through 11 who witness the undeniable power of Jesus Christ over inborn blindness of this man. It's important to note that the condition of this blind man, get this, the condition of this blind man parallels our condition as sinners before we are saved by grace. <clears throat> Excuse me. First, this blind man was found where? Outside the temple. Begging. That's a depiction of the sinner in his natural, unregenerate condition. He's powerless. He's separated from God. He is an alien from God. You know, God's own elect, His very own elect, were alienated from God, shutouts and beggars, just like I was, just like you were if you're in Christ, or just like you are if you're not in Christ. Shutouts until God's grace was dispensed according to His divine timetable. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 says, At that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you 
who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. If you're not covered by the blood of Christ, you're an alien of Christ. Secondly, this man was blind. Therefore, unable to see the Savior when he approached him. Jesus approached this blind man. This blind man did not see Jesus. Same is true for us. We were blind without Christ. We are blind. We are incapable of seeing him as who he is and what he has accomplished until, until he acted on behalf of us and caused us to see. God causes the sinner to see. That's key to this passage. Only God causes the sinner to see. Third, this man was blind from birth. Congenital blindness. Just as the sinner is estranged from God from the womb. That's that sin nature. Psalm 58.3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Who's guilty of mankind? All are guilty. Sinners. Fourth, this man was beyond human help. Nobody had a cure for this man's blindness. And all sinners also are helpless and hopeless unless God intervenes. Granting the sinner unconditional grace, forgiveness, and even, get this, repentance. God grants the sinner the ability to repent and then to believe. It was the, the Apostle Paul who instructed Timothy how and why he was to address false teachers as well as those that were deceived. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, he said, In humility, correct those who are in, in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them what? Repentance. So that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. There again we see that human effort to change is useless. Moral reform saves no one. Anybody can go clean up their lives, quit smoking dope and quit drinking and drunkenness and all that. People can do that. But you can't get yourself right with God. If repentance is not fashioned by and applied to the sinner, enabling him to carry out God's grace, power, and commands, he's helpless. They're helpless, just like this blind man. So all true repentance is produced by God's sovereign grace as well as the faith to believe. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, that in, these ages, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Fifth, this man was a beggar. Verse 8, we see he was a beggar. He was unable to purchase any cure whatsoever. He was completely dependent upon charity. And most people will admit that, will not admit rather, that they're spiritual beggars in desperate need. But they'll attempt to purchase salvation. 
In other words, they'll attempt to work for it. They'll attempt to find favor in the sight of God by those things in which they do, places in which they show up or participate in. Unable to recognize that salvation is not for sale. Amen? It's not for sale. Even Arminians will agree that you can't purchase salvation. However, in their theological system of belief, salvation is not nor can it be all grace. Because they believe that they bring something to the table that cooperates with God to bring forth salvation. And such is not the case, biblically speaking. They believe that they offer the faith as God makes the offer of salvation. So therefore, they bring that work of faith to the table. We just read in Ephesians 2 that even faith is a gift, amen? Salvation is all grace. That's why we ought to be so thankful. We cannot boast. I believe that's why there's so much deception today with people who think they're saved because they did something. They responded to something. They perhaps came forward in order to be born again. Come forward, they'll say, at many evangelistic events. They'll say, come forward and be born again. Walk an aisle. Pray and receive Christ in order to be born again. No, he causes you to be born again, granting you the faith to believe and to repent, to turn and embrace Christ fully. The sinner is as helpless as this blind man. And these popular methods of evangelicalism today produce much deception, a great misleading. Now, mind you, if man in his sinful condition is merely spiritually sick, if sin is only a sickness, then perhaps he plays part in cooperating with God in his salvation. But man is much more than sick. The Bible says that the sinner is not simply sick, but he is what? Dead. He is dead in trespasses and sins, as Ephesians 2 tells us. Romans chapter 3 is clear that says there's no one righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There's no one who does good, no, not one. Is that clear? I think it's pretty clear. I know where my salvation came from. I played no part in it. What so ever. It's a grace gift. Romans chapter 6 verse 5 says, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, in the likeness of Christ's death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. In Jesus Christ... For anyone who's in Christ, there's a new quality and a new character of life. This speaks of regeneration. Life outside of yourself. And who produces spiritual life into the sinner? Only one. God. God alone. A dead man, a dead woman cannot assist 
in the resurrection. Lazarus, when Jesus called him forth, did nothing to assist Jesus in raising from the dead. Amen? He walked out because he was commanded to do so because life was granted to him again. He was resurrected and he came forth according to the command of Christ. So like the beggar, the sinner is completely dependent upon God's charity. There's no escape to that fact. Sixth, this man made no appeal to Jesus. He did not know Jesus. He wasn't even looking for Jesus. It was Jesus that was looking for him. Such is our condition before divine grace begins to operate within us. We'll see that as Jesus concludes here in chapter 9, he goes right into chapter 10 as he refers to himself as the shepherd and those who follow him, his sheep. See, it's Jesus who seeks out the sheep. Amen? Have you ever seen or witnessed a sheep that selects his shepherd or her shepherd? Never. Sheep on lands and farms, they don't go seek out their shepherd. The, the, the shepherd comes and picks out his sheep, and then those sheep follow that shepherd. Seventh, the reasoning of the disciples back in verse 2, where they said, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That illustrates the sad fact that human beings do not pity the sinner like Christ pities the sinner in their spiritual wretchedness. See, man has no cure in and of himself for another sinner. We can point him to the cure, amen, but we cannot provide them the cure. Only Christ can provide them that cure. That's because man is totally depraved. Before Jesus Christ, his heart is totally darkened, totally sinful, incapable of upholding his standard, which is perfect holiness. That's impossible. So, before Christ, the sinner is lifeless, he's ruined, he's darkened, he's blind and helpless, as depicted right here in the inherent condition of this blind man to whom Jesus commanded, go. Wash in the pool of Siloam after he touched him. Jesus came to the sinner. Jesus came to the blind man. He wiped mud in his eyes and he commanded him, Go wash. He went and washed and came back seeing. Jesus touched him and then commanded him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. So, in response to Jesus' authoritative command, in this man's obedience, he came to a personal understanding as to the power and the work of Jesus Christ. That obedience was granted because of the command. Grace. So, it was now or never for this man. And by the grace imparted to him, he got up and he went and he washed and he saw. Vision. That's a picture of sovereign grace. Sola gratia. Grace what? Alone. Grace alone. So for anyone to truly see spiritually, Christ must transform the dead spiritual optic nerve 
in order to grant spiritual vision. It's a must. Without, is, without the invasion of Jesus Christ, invasion of Christ in one's life, they're unable to see. Because no man, no woman is able to make themselves see spiritually. It's impossible. And I did say invasion. Jesus invades the sinner's life. When he's going to save someone, he invades their life. Now, some preachers will say, Jesus is a gentleman. He isn't going to invade your life. He's gently tapping on the door of your heart. You've heard these messages. He's standing there tapping on the door of your heart. He's waiting for you to open the door because the knob on that door, there's only one and it's on the inside. And you must open it. But that's a mishandling of Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Jesus said, Behold, I stand and I knock at the door. And he's talking to his church. Open the door for fellowship, communion. When Jesus saves a sinner, he kicks the door in. And he begins with a full-blown attack against man's conscience. He exposes pride, sin, rebellion, and he turns that sinner's world inside out. That's an invasion. And he brings about conversion. That's transformation. That's salvation. Come on, somebody. That's sovereign grace. And sovereign grace seeks the sinner without which no one can believe. If it were not for God sovereignly pursuing the lost sinner, we would be incapable of seeing Christ as he is. You may see aspects of him. He may look fuzzy. You may know truth about him, but you won't know him unless he does such a divine work as this. Mankind is systematically blind to true spirituality because they are spiritually dead. So it wasn't a question here in verse 2, who sinned, as the disciples asked. Because we know Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Amen? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But look at verse 3. Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Now, ultimately, of course, they all sinned because all have sinned, but that was not the cause of the blindness. But that the works of God should be revealed in him. For God's sovereign purpose, this man was born blind to reveal the power of God. Amen? See, if Jesus Christ has not touched your eyes, you don't see. Regardless of what you feel, regardless of what you know to be true, and I'm talking about the eyes of your heart, because this blind man could feel. This blind man knew certain things to be true. That if he stuck his head in a pool of water and took a breath in, he'd die. He knew not to do that, being a blind man. Amen? There's many things that the spiritually blind know about God, but they remain steeped in their blindness. Dead. And their trespasses and sins. There's numerous church attendees this very moment who don't even know they're blind. As they sit there and say, Hallelujah. Amen. Whatever they do. Many blind religious people think they see. 
They trust in some ceremony that they've carried out. They trust in some experience as their voucher or their receipt for salvation. They remain blind. And here in John 9, we observe the Lord dealing in grace according to his sovereign will. This is grace, man. A man blind from birth who was granted sight by Jesus Christ became a phenomenon. So much so that his healing caused numerous reactions. And the effects of the miracle are obvious by the response of four individual groups. Number one, the response of his neighbors. The second group, the response of the Pharisees. And then, which we'll look at next week, the man's own parents. And then finally, we see the response of the man himself. So the creation of sight, notice, creation within this man, the creation of sight granted to this man creates genuine commotion. And those who knew this man likely knew him from birth were his very own neighbors and family. When they saw them, get this, they simply did not recognize him. So it calls them now to call to mind the man's demeanor, his bearing, and his posture. Because the manner in which he now carried himself was totally contrary to what they knew of the man prior to the healing. So in response to the healed blind man, we will this morning observe his neighbor's reaction. We're just going to stay there, his neighbor's reaction. Three points of focus this morning in your outline, and your bulletin are outlined for you. We see the neighbor's communal confusion followed by their eager inquiry, and then we will see the personal testimony of the blind man who was granted sight. So now to see this man walking about in a normal manner was such an incredible sight that they thought it to be a case of mistaken identity. All right? That was the introduction. That leads us to point number one, the the communal confusion of his neighbors, verses 8 and 9. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, this is he. Others said, well, he's like him, but he said, I am he. It's me. This man, born blind, having never seen the sun, the sky, the clouds, the trees, buildings, water, let alone a human being, is now walking back to the neighborhood. I mean, where else would you want to go and testify of something like this, amen? You want to go home. To those closest to me. And notice, as he arrived, these men, the many instances of they said, some said, others said. Notice in verse 3, or verse 8, Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind. The man's previous condition in his appearance was so was obviously so considerably different that it caused them to go, wait a minute, that's not him. Well, yes, it is. No, it's not. It can't be. Well, it is. Think about it. Blind from birth. Don't know what his eyes looked like. 
glazed over, one looking this way, one looking down this way. Most likely he had his head turned when he would walk, his ear forward. He would be shuffling his feet, walking like this. That's all he knew. That was his body language. Arms out, touching objects that he recognized in order to make his way home. Shuffling his feet ever so cautiously. Now was blazing down the street. Who's that? Uh, Isn't that the blind beggar? No, it can't be. It is. No, it just looks like him. Having never seen anything ever, this man would not be capable of receiving all of his visual information in his head unless there was a healing in his brain as well. Not just his eyes. How else could his mind register all of this new information? Having never seen. Oliver Sacks, professor of neurology at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, New York, in his book, An Anthropologist on Mars, writes about a man named Virgil, a 50-year-old man, blind from childhood, whose sight was restored in 1991 after a new lens was implanted in one eye. Sachs writes, and I quote, When the bandages were removed, Virgil could see, but he had no idea what he was seeing. Light, movement, and color were all mixed up and meaningless. All were just a blur. His brain could, not make, it could make no sense of the images that his optic nerve was transmitting. Although he now had eyesight, he was still mentally blind. A condition of perceptual incapacity known medically as agnosia. Virgil could not distinguish words on a board, even though he could read Braille fluently, as well as raised or inscribed letters. He could easily read the inscribed letters on tombstone by touch. A cat was particularly puzzling, as he could see parts clearly, a paw, a nose, the tail. Okay, if you touch a paw, and then you see a paw, okay, I see, that must be a paw. Okay, that must be the nose. But the cat as a whole was only a blur, as were human faces, end quote. Now, I'm going to pause for a moment here because I'm going to read some more of this, this article. But think about that. A cat as a whole was a blur. In the Gospel of Mark, there's another account. A fascinating account of how Jesus healed a blind man, another blind man. But here he performed it in a two-step process. Mark chapter 8, verse 22. Then he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everything clearly. Back to Sack's book. A few days after his operation, Virgil said that trees didn't look like anything. 
But a month later, he finally put a tree together and realized that the trunk and the leaves formed a complete unit. Sachs goes on with some clinical aspects of agnosia. Quote, People who have formerly been used to a world they accessed only by touch, hearing, taste, and smell tend to be baffled by appearance, which, being optical, has no correlation in the other senses. People who've been totally blind from birth, congenital blindness, or early childhood have lived in a world of time alone, not time and space. Thus, the step at the end of the porch is something which occurs for a blind person a short time after he leaves the doorway rather than something he is aware of in space. Look at the end of the corridor, there's a door. You know there's a threshold there before you get there, amen? Not the blind. Sachs quotes the autobiography of uh, Touching the Rock of John Hull, a blind man, who says that, for the blind... People are there only when they speak. They come and they go out of nothing. Sachs says that these sorts of difficulties are almost universal among the early blinded, restored to sight. And he mentions a patient who could not recognize individual faces a year after his eye operation, despite his then having perfectly normal elementary vision. From such case histories, it appears that when sight is suddenly restored, there's the need for the development of some new pathways in the visual cortex of the brain, end quote. So the story of the Bethsaida blind man in Mark 8 who saw people as trees walking is today a clinical description of agnosia. Why did God put that in there? To show us power over mystery, amen? That's exciting. I was so fired up when I came across that. So like Virgil, this blind man could see, but with the additional complication of agnosia. He could not make sense of what he was seeing, although he could see. Many spiritually blind people, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the only way. That's all they see. They don't see him. They don't know him. They see partially. Jesus, having given his eyesight, then heals his ignosia in Mark's account in one miraculous instant. His brain was taught what the rest of us have learned from childhood. To conclude the clinical article, by Sachs, he says, quote, Sighted babies learn to master all this as time goes by. An achievement, it should be noted, which is beyond the capacity of even our largest supercomputers. People who become blind later in life have built up a visual memory of the way things look and how they fit together in space. However, for the newly sighted, it is a huge learning task involving a radical change in both neurological and psychological functioning. Listen to this. A change in the perceptual habits and strategies of a lifetime. In short, a change of identity. End quote. Now, the most exciting thing about that last sentence is that 
I came up with the title of this message before I ever came across this article, which I didn't even read till Thursday. Isn't that awesome? Glory to the Lord right there. A change in identity. So this miracle of healing would have involved restoring or creating eye structures for this blind man from birth, as well as creating new nerve pathways and connections to the brain. That's amazing. So this man's walking home unguarded. He's not like this. You, you see this now? See how in, the, the intensity of this? New body language, unrecognizable, totally new identity, but the same person. There are no miracles, zero miracles, involving restoration of sight in the Old Testament. It is presented in the Bible as the special activity of the Messiah and was the most frequent of Jesus' ministries. Miracles. Isaiah 35.5, Then, when Messiah comes, the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. In Luke 4.18, Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. So this reaction of the neighbors is reminiscent of anyone who's been truly apprehended by Jesus Christ. In other words, they've been born again. Unrecognizable. A new identity. So the new identity that one inherits in Christ upon conversion is so noticeable that the new convert becomes almost unrecognizable to friends and to family and to neighbors. I do not believe that if a person is truly converted, if you've been changed from blindness to having sight, that you can go on without people noticing that you've been changed. I don't believe it's possible. If there's no evidence of change, there's something very wrong. And what's wrong is that they probably haven't been changed. Now, if a person was born again as a child... Can God regenerate a baby? Yes. John the Baptist was filled with the Spirit from the womb. That's the work. If that doesn't prove divine sovereignty, I don't know what does. He was born again in the womb. What part did John play in that? Raising his hand at the end of a prayer? Nothing. It's the divine work of a sovereign God to a baby in a womb. Yes, he can regenerate a baby. Yes, he can regenerate a child at five, six, seven, eight years old. But I'll tell you what, if he or she is regenerate, they will grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, proving that they've been transformed, that they have a relationship with the living God, not some flippant prayer at some event. Amen. Come on, somebody. True transformation, radical transformation. I take zero credit, get this, I take zero credit in my salvation. Nothing. No, I didn't bring faith to the table. God granted me the faith to believe. I was converted so radically. God began to draw me to himself. I didn't know this at the time. As I look back, God began to draw me to himself nine months before I was converted. For some reason, I picked up the Bible and wanted to start reading it. Let me tell you, there was nothing in me that wanted to do that. Especially where I started reading in Jeremiah. I had no idea what I was reading. 
Why I picked Jeremiah, I don't know. Go read Jeremiah 31 once. Come on, somebody. After a few months, he radically transformed me, all alone, no event, no show, in my room, broken. And a few days after that, some friends of mine from Iowa came out to visit. They had previously lived here in San Diego. I used to run around with this guy. So he ran around with me when I was unsaved. When he came to my house and visited, he just sat in my kitchen like this. He looked dumbfounded. He goes, what's wrong with you? I go, nothing. I didn't even know what happened to me yet. I knew I was in Christ. I knew I had a relationship with God. I didn't know about being born again. I didn't know theology. I didn't know doctrine. All I knew is I met Jesus and he made me well. That's all I know. He was freaked out for the rest of the week. He couldn't wait to get back to Iowa. He's probably just convicted by God's grace overflowing through a sinner saved by the same grace. So when a sinner who's dead in trespasses and sins has been quickened into newness of life, he becomes a new creature in Christ. Amen? 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, what things have become new? All things. All things have become new. There's an undeniable change that takes place when God grants spiritual sight. Not the sight of men walking around that look like trees, but the one who sees the Savior who healed them, who gave them sight to see the face of Jesus, the person of Jesus, relationally. The Apostle Paul, formerly known as Saul, hated the church, anyone of the way, that's what the church was referred to early on, those of the way. He had papers in his hand, documents in his hand, on the road to Damascus to arrest anyone in Damascus, professing the name of Jesus Christ, those of the way, and to bring them, to arrest them, and bring them back. On his way, he was met by Jesus Christ, physically blinded for three days, and then he raised, he, he was granted his sight back. And then Jesus sent another one of his servants. And he said, bring Saul to me for I must show him the things that he must suffer for my name's sake. That happened. Acts 9, verse 20. And then immediately, immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on his name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose? So that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? That's transformation. That's Jesus Christ invading the life of the sinner. A God-hater, a religious God-hater was Saul because he hated Christ, transformed. So after much dispute here with the neighbors, back to John 9. This cured man ended, ended the controversy by repeatedly declaring, I am, it is me, it is me, it is me. Continually saying, it's me, it's me, it is me. I'm here. 
I'm new. I can see. See, this is what's so perplexing in connection with regeneration. The individual is still the same person. I'm the same person. But a new principle and element have come into my life. We have a union with the living God who transformed us, you see. In such transformation, a transformation like this will oftentimes initiate intense examination. Point number two, eager inquiry. The eager inquiry of the neighbors. Verse 10, therefore, because this guy rolled into town, walking different, they look back to what he was previously, said, this can't be. But it is. No, it looks like him. Yes, it is. No, I am, I am. Therefore, they said to him, how? How were your eyes open? No doubt they've been open, but how? How were they open? That's the question. So the neighbors are no longer in doubt concerning his identity. They want to know how his eyes were open. Oh, how people whose eyes have not been opened want to know the peace, the tranquility, and the assurance that's been granted to you whose eyes have been opened. How? Usually they'll say this. How? How did you do this? How did you make these changes? Amen? How did you do this? How, how did you become such a, a gentle person? A loving, quiet, not breaking chairs over the, on the floor when you get angry. Like my friend witnessed me do once. When you tell them, it wasn't me, they may want to stop hearing. But then if God's divinely, sovereignly at work in their life, perhaps he'll use you in your transformed life to proclaim gospel truth. Beginning with his holiness and their depravity. Followed by the gospel. Amen. So the unregenerate sinner is incapable of grasping the divine work of God in the new believer's life. They cannot understand this mystery. Solomon spoke about the mysteries of God in Ecclesiastes 11.5. As you do not know what is the way of the wind or how the bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, so you do not know the works of God who makes everything, including those who see spiritually. Amen. I added that. But it's true. We read this morning, Aaron read from Mark chapter 4, verse 26, and he said, the Lord Jesus, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how. For the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, after the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. That parable is only recorded in Mark's gospel. You perhaps may have never read it before. And it's complementary to the parable of the sower, which explains in more detail the results of spiritual growth to the seed that's planted in good soil. Remember, the sower goes out and he sows seed. The seed is the word of God. The seed's always good because it's the word of God. The problem is with all the jacked up soil. And there's only one that receives it. The others look like they receive it, except the one that's snatched away by the words, which represents the devil just taking and it's snatching it from the earlobe. 
But the others look like it for a while, but they never were. This good soil produces, reproduces some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. And then there's testimony to that truth, you see. It produces something. And then this healed man now gives a condensed, clear, non-exaggerated account of what took place. And here we have the personal testimony, point three, verse 11. He answered and said, a man called Jesus. Jesus. That sweet name. Made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. See, the only testimony that this man could offer were the bare bone facts of that which took place. He doesn't attempt to communicate more than he knows. He didn't attempt to come across as some great theologian. Amen? He just told the truth. This is what happened. We're going to see later in this account some increased boldness in this brother. Increased understanding. What happens when you walk with Christ? If you're in Christ, increase boldness and increase knowledge. He gave a bold testimony as to the facts. He refers to the one who gave him sight as the man called Jesus. He had known his name is Jesus. Jesus was the talk of the town. Everyone was seeking his miraculous power, but the majority of them didn't want him. And this guy gives just a straight-up account of what happened. The testimony goes back to Christ. You know, sometimes you hear people give their testimonies. They'll come up to a place like this. We're going to call Brother Louie up here, and he's going to give his testimony. And all he talks about is his sinful past, boasting in his sin. You ever heard any of those? Really irritating. Yeah, I used to be this, and then I did this, and, well, I did this. Well, this is kind of embarrassing to say, but... And then he goes and he sits down. Well, now we're going to call Brother Stevie up. And then Stevie goes, boy, if you think he was bad, <laughs> let me tell you about my life. And then he goes and he boasts in his sin. That's not testimony. I was a wretched, rotten, blind sinner saved by Jesus Christ. That's the testimony. He gave me sight to see. 1 John 5, 11, This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son simply does not have the life. Titus 3 verse 4. When the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by what? No, not by works. Not by anything you did, he says, of righteousness. No works of righteousness that you did which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of what? Regeneration. Life. To the dead. The spiritually dead. And renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified, okay, declared free from all blame. If you're in Christ, you're declared free from all blame. You'll never be judged for your sin because all of that judgment was placed upon Christ on the cross. And you get all of his righteousness. 
justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Heirs of grace. Because you're sons and daughters of the king, you become an heir. You didn't earn it. It was granted by grace. So the reactions, the confusion, the doubt of family and friends seen here in these verses are comparable to the reactions of those who've witnessed the lives of anyone who have been truly transformed by the sovereign grace, the power of the Holy Spirit. Now the plot's going to thicken next time. The Pharisees become involved, become involved, but this man stands firm. The biggest fear of that day was to be unsynagogued, literally unsynagogued. To be kicked out of the synagogue, to profess Christ, was to be kicked out of the synagogue. And people feared that. And we'll see his parents feared that next time. But what's before us here in John 9 accurately depicts what transpires in the life of the true believer who's been saved from above. Born again, as Jesus said. You must be born again. As you look at this passage over and over again, you will likely see the corresponding truths to your own life, hopefully. If you're truly in Christ. So my question this morning, have you been saved by Christ alone? Have you seen His face? Understanding that He's granted you grace alone? By faith alone. All of those are gifts. Gifts. Have you been saved? Are you saved? And if you have, then you've likely experienced such a reaction from those closest to you. Who are you? What's happened? What's all this Jesus stuff all of a sudden? Right? I believe also that the life transformation of this blind man also ought to be the litmus test for anyone who says that they know Christ. For anyone who says, oh, I came to faith. Where? Over at so-and-so place, I said a prayer. Okay, I'm going to watch to see if there's transformation in your life. That's the work of God. So those who say Jesus this or Jesus that, they haven't been changed. There's been no transformation. There must be self-examination. And I give that to all here today because I don't know the hearts of you, but he does. And deep down, you do. Self-examination, because we're getting ready to come to the Lord's table. The juice and the bread, which represent his broken body and his shed blood. And if you're not in Christ, you do not want to partake. Because to merely agree with the facts about Christ is to see as a blind man who only sees men that look like trees. Yes, Jesus died. His body was broken. He shed his blood. I agree with that. But do you know the face of Jesus? Have you been transformed by Jesus? If you haven't, you call out to him for his mercy and ask him to grant you the grace to see. You must repent. You must turn. You must go like this man did to the pool. You must go to him. You turn from your sin and you go to Christ and you embrace him. And there'll be fruit of that in your life if it's him. If it's him. 
This man's identity was almost unrecognizable due to a visibly transformed life. Why? Here it is. Because Jesus totally healed him. Totally. Spiritually speaking, spiritual healing, you're totally healed because salvation is all of God first to last. Salvation is of God. You don't want to have to do something to save yourself, amen? We rejoice in this broken body and shed blood of Christ represented here in the elements. I'm going to ask that you bow your heads and think about this as I ask the men to come forward. Just think about this. We have two needs. We have the need for righteousness because we have none of it in and of ourselves. Amen? God said, be holy for I am what? Hold on, guys. I am holy. He demands holiness. Perfect righteousness. That's one need we have. The second need we have is total forgiveness. We, have, we need forgiveness. Amen? So by, listen now, by the act of obedience of Jesus Christ who upheld the law of God perfectly because He was the Son of God and He couldn't fail. He couldn't sin. His act of obedience and upholding that perfect law. You're granted righteousness as a believer. And because of His passive obedience, going to the cross on our behalf, you are granted by His death, resurrection, complete forgiveness. Complete forgiveness. So everything we have need of is met in Christ alone. And we must remember that as we partake this morning. Father, we thank you. We praise you for your divine sovereign work that began before the foundation of the earth, granted to us by grace, your church, individual sinners saved by grace through the finished work of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray for anyone here this morning who is yet blind. I pray that you'll open their eyes to see that they're lost and they need the great shepherd. They need the Savior. And there's only one, and it's you, Jesus, the name above all names. I pray that you would cause them to be born again, that you'll invade their mind and their hearts and transform them this morning, that they might partake with us as new creatures in Christ for your glory alone. And for those of us in Christ, may we be reminded this morning of the intensity of the cross, the broken body and shed blood. In Jesus' name, amen.